Welcome to the Penguin Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Tate. We have an incredible show for you this week. One of the great all-time trade show magicians, Danny Orleans, is my guest. We discuss his beginnings as a family show magician and then talk his turn to the corporate world as well as discuss his time as a product reviewer for Genie and a lot more. Nick Lacapo stops by the show to discuss the feature product of the week from R. Paul Wilson. Before all of that, the show kicks off with one of our quickfire segments where your favorite magicians share the literature they would love to be lost at sea with. This week, entrepreneur and Edinburgh Fringe award-winning magician, Cameron Young joins me for Desert Island Magic Books. Cameron Young, thanks so much for joining me here back on the Penguin Magic Podcast for Desert Island Magic Books. Let's suppose you wash up on a desert island with one magic book, but it's made of Tyvek, so it's not going to fall apart in the wind and the rain and the sand. What is your Desert Island Magic Book? Well, this is something I have been thinking about for a long time because I listen to the podcast all of the time. Oh, excellent. And every time, every time I read a new book, is, is it this one? Is it that one? So I'm going to tell you about two of them. Because, but then I'll tell you, I'll give you my favorite, but I couldn't not mention one of them. Okay. So I have a new favorite magic book, and my new favorite magic book is Offbeat by Nick DeFat. Oh. I absolutely love that book. It's so good. It's, it, it, I, it, am a- I love Nick DeFat. He's a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show, and, I, and I've read all of his stuff, and, and Offbeat is such a good book. Is that your Desert Island magic book? No. <laughs> the reason for it is it's not big enough. Okay. There's not enough stuff in it. So Fair enough. I would have to say the Mark Wilson's Complete Course in Magic because that was my first ever magic book. And I want that to be, that would have to be it because it's my first ever magic book. It was a book I inherited from my dad who um, was a magician when he was younger and now he doesn't do it. And not only that, there's a bit of everything. So I would have to go with Mark Wilson, but I could not mention Nick DeFat because that is like my ultimate favorite. But... And when I go back, I was honestly, I was between these two for weeks mm-hmm. and I didn't know which one to go for, but we have to go for Mark Wilson's Course in Magic. You know, it's it's funny, as of this recording, Nick Lacapo and I did a, a YouTube uh, Penguin Magic Top 10 for Beginner's Books and the Mark Wilson book obviously came up for that. And it made me sort of go back and read it because actually if you watch that YouTube video, there is... Um, most of the books that we had are actually from my library uh, that we brought in. And it, I hadn't looked through the Mark Wilson course in magic in years. And it, it made me go back through it. And it's full of some really good magic. Like, it's not just a beginner's book. Like, there, it's you should go back through it uh, if you own it because there's some fantastic magic in there that'll make you kind of go, oh, like, I forgot about this method or I forgot about this slide or this trick. And it's a, it's a really good book and a great template for how to teach people yeah i totally agree and i actually was shown uh, an effect from this for one of my friends recently mm-hmm. and it fooled me and i actually knew the method because i've read the book but he came up with such an amazing presentation and it just shows what you can do with some of the effects in the book and i look back at it as a reference i've still got the original copy the first one that came out um mm-hmm. that was my dad's and um, yeah, it's like a treasured possession of mine. It's the one that's always on my shelf. Well, Mark Wilson's Complete Course in Magic is a fantastic book to bring to a desert island. Cameron Young, thanks so much for joining us here on Desert Island Magic Books. Thank you. Thanks so much to Cameron Young for joining me on the show. Special shout out to Cameron Young and Moxie Gillette for their award-winning show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Congratulations on all the success. Now, 
on to the main event. Daniel Orleans is one of the hardest working magicians in the United States. He's an accomplished family and corporate entertainer, headlines the Chicago Magic Lounge, performs a brilliant coding act with his partner, the fabulous Jan Rose, and he was a product reviewer for Genie. It's always a, such a treat to get an accomplished creator and performer on our show. We had a wide-ranging chat about his career, his thoughts on the industry, and now you get to join our conversation. Danny Orleans, thanks so much for joining me here on the Penguin Magic Podcast. I'm so excited to get you on. I know this has been a long time coming because I've had to cancel a couple times. You're such a busy performer, and and uh, I'm so excited to have you on because you do an insane amount of shows. It's amazing that whenever I'm performing in Chicago, I even get to cross paths with you. I'm a busy boy, and I am thrilled that here in 2023, post-pandemic, uh, I'm having my busiest year ever. My busiest year ever. That's incredible. More shows, more travel, and more money. I'm I'm very, very happy. Now, you have a couple of different areas that you perform in because I know one of the things that a lot of the magic community knows you about for these days is uh, you curate the Amaze Kids uh, uh, selection of products over at Vanishing Inc. But you do you do something like you've done over four thousand shows for children at, at parties and schools and libraries, but you're also a trade show magician, like a really well known trade show magician who performs for some of the biggest companies in the world. How do you have those two different? I mean, what I would consider very different areas of business how do you they are very different areas of business and they're very different skill sets Mm -hmm. um a lot of people a lot of magicians who know me and know my reputation know that i do that that i have skills in both of those areas however my life has been divided up you know i've been doing magic for (laughs) over 40 years now right and closer to 50 years and um, as a full-time professional. And the first couple of decades of my full-time career, so from the ages of like 23 to late 30s, were devoted to work for children. Mm-hmm. And um, and the school shows, performing in museums, throwing my tricks in the back of my car, driving, you know, in all over the all over the eastern half of the United States performing school tours where I would pull into a town and do every school in their town for a week or two or even four weeks. Like I did every school in New Orleans. I was there for four weeks. Um, But that was, you know, that was in the uh, 1980s and uh, and the late 70s, 80s and er early 90s. Mm -hmm. And then as I learned close-up magic from Eugene Berger and started to do work in, in restaurants, upscale restaurants in the very early 1990s, mm-hmm. um, I um, I realized that I, I was perfect for this trade show setting. Yeah. And so I began to slowly change my career and move away from school shows mm-hmm. into the tr- world of trade shows. But trade shows are a, a little bit well. So, so I'm not doing them both at, right now. Fair you enough. Know? Yeah, I, I do maybe, including the kids show at the Chicago Magic Lounge, which I do a few times a year. I'm probably doing less than ten shows that are considered kids shows gotcha. a year now. It's really not part of my my work. No, and you, it's even hard to find that. It's it's off my main website. Yeah, and you know, 
uh, I'm not active in the children's performing anymore now, with, in terms of making money doing it. With trade shows, though, I think one of the things that you are very, very good at is incorporating a company's message and yes. and their marketing into what it is. And when you were doing school shows, were they themed at all? Because it seems like that is the one skill of the people I know who do school shows. They have to come in with mm-hmm. a theme so it can be educational and bringing that over into the corporate world where you're right. educating somebody about a company's product. I mean, that must have been, I mean, a huge advantage for you as you began to move into this, this area. Theoretically, yes. But the, the person who does it best uh, in terms of doing messaging into a kid show is mm-hmm. Doug Shear from the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. And Doug has like 10 different themed school shows that he does, including one on math, one on history, one on science, uh, um, cu- culture, um, uh, character, you know, all sorts of different things along that line. Mm-hmm. And he does it very well. But that's a 45 minute show. Yeah. In a trade show setting, you're only performing for 10 minutes. So now the messaging is yeah. totally different. It's not a long form anymore. This is a 10-minute pitch act, essentially. Yeah. And the messaging is brief and one or two sentences woven into. So if you're doing if you're doing Hundy 500, for example, mm-hmm. you show your dollar bills, you let everybody touch them to verify they're real. You put them back in a packet so they're one. You fold them in half. And just before you turn them into 100, you do three sentences about how the the company you're working for is going to help the attendee at the trade show improve their bottom line. Mm. And now the the pattern makes sense with the trick because you're turning ones into hundreds. Mm -hmm. We're going to help you make more money when you buy our product or you're going to save all this money because you're going to buy our product. Do you find that converting their messaging is easier when it's sort of broad like that or is it e- or is it easier when you have to incorporate their product in in some way oh it's challenging to incorporate pro- product information in, mm-hmm. into a magic show especially in a trade show setting because you have to remember this mm-hmm. people are not sitting down at a trade show they are standing yeah. it is busy if you can if you've never been to a trade show Imagine the dealer room at Magic Live and what a cacophony of sounds that is with so many people walking all over the place, people interrupting and butting into conversations that other people are having Mm -hmm. because they feel they can. And that's what a trade show is like. So you're trying to perform for people. Cell phones go off. People who haven't seen each other in a year or two suddenly interrupt your show and shake hands with each other. People just walk away because something else has caught their attention. So it is very challenging to incorporate messaging and and hold their attention at the same time. If I think that trade show magic is one of those things that many, many magicians who aspire to become full-time professionals think to themselves, Oh, I'll just do trade show magic because it's something that they've heard of, but they don't have, a really accurate idea of how to go after that kind of gig or what to do when mm-hmm. they're in there. What advice would you have to the beginning trade show magician? If you want to do trade show magic, first of all, you have to make sure that your website shows that you perform for adults. Mm-hmm. You need to have a video of you that is very well done and very professional looking. 
hopefully in a trade show environment, but even if not in a corporate setting. Once you have that, then you should just walk a trade show, find the nearest convention center near your house and go to a trade show. Now, some trade shows you can't get in, but there's a lot of trade shows that you can get in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to They'll, they'll let an observer in. You might have to pay 50 or or $100, which to most magicians, say, whoa, that's a lot of money, but it's a lot less expensive to walk a trade show, it, to pay $100 to walk a trade show than it is to spend a day trying to find the names of people to call. Yeah. Because now look at the advantage you have being there live. You can have a couple of tricks in your pocket. And you can just go up to people in their booths and saying, you know, I noticed it was a little bit slow here in the booth. People are paying attention to that big booth across the aisle. Here's an idea. I I could help you uh, draw more traffic to your booth. And you show them the magic trick and you explain how you use this as a visual enticement to draw people into the booth. And you show them how you can incorporate their marketing message simultaneously. That's interesting. I, you know, I never thought of like getting a trade show gig the same way I might get a restaurant gig. Where, you know, where like I go in and I show the bartender a trick and the next thing I know I'm talking to the manager. Well, yep. it just, it absolutely makes sense that that's the same kind of networking that you would do just on a corporate level. And the difference is instead of going in and buying an iced tea, uh, you're, you know, wearing some nice clothes and looking around and trying to understand what the not only what the atmosphere is but what the products are that they're trying to sell so that you can express interest in it and then show your your own stuff right right and i i actually put together an entire course on performing magic in a trade show environment that i taught just before the pandemic mm-hmm. and it was taught completely online to about 18 magicians and Unfortunately, but by the time the course ended, it was like seven weeks. Uh, you know, it ended in September, October, uh, and, and then a few months later, boom, <laughs> pandemic, no more trade shows. So, um, but uh, I have taught it as the pandemic has come back. I've taught it for smaller groups, and uh, it's been very helpful to give magicians a sense of what this this market is like. I, I love that no good deed goes unpunished. You're trying to you're trying to share these these pieces of wisdom that other people would jealously guard, and uh, and unfortunately for you, it caused a pandemic. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shift the topic real quick because I think that there's another area that many many people know you from um, is that you for 25 years you were a product reviewer at Genie Magazine. And That's right. That is, you know, I'm on the producing side of the tricks. Not that you aren't, but yeah, yeah. you know, sending that, that sending a product to a reviewer is always, you know, it's it's all, it always makes me a little nervous. But um, I guess, and this is a little self serving, but what kind of advice would you give magicians about, you know, marketing a trick or at least producing an effect that will receive a positive review from a critical mm. reviewer? You know, boy, um, I think that the biggest problem in the magic community right now, and you have to, let me take a step backwards here. I started reviewing magic, I think it was 1995. Mm -hmm. Erica Larson called me, because this is before the sale of Jeannie to Richard Kaufman. Oh, yeah. 
And Max Maven had told her, because she was taking over Jeannie, uh, and Max, Ma Max Maven helped her a lot. And one of the things he told her is, you need a new trick reviewer, call Danny Orleans. So we had a conversation, and I started reviewing for Erica, mm -hmm. which at the time, Jeannie was, she was having a lot of trouble keeping up with the once a month schedule. It was coming out like four times a year. Yeah. So, so um, but... So I've been reviewing from some, you know, before the internet was a thing. Yeah. You know, that that's the point I'm making here. And what I got, but I, and DVDs didn't come into really play until around 2005, maybe. So what I saw is this change from, I used to get a box of magic because they'd, People would send stuff to me mm -hmm. or they'd send stuff to Erica. Eric would send it to me in a box and there would be tricks and plastic bags with a set of Xeroxed instructions. Right. Yeah. And that changed. Well, in my review period, that completely changed into. Um, <laughs> into the instructions being on a DVD. Yeah. So now, but what I also noticed what happened is the tricks changed. The props, instead of becoming real three-dimensional, were now flat so they could fit in a DVD case. Mm. So what happened was magicians were thinking, what can I sell to the magic community? It has to fit in a DVD case now. It could be a coin. It could be a bill. It could be a gimmick card. But it can't be a rock anymore because a rock is too three-dimensional yeah. it can't be it can't be an eight ball anymore oh. right you, you know because it, magicians want stuff i want to be able to ship it and package it all in a dvd yeah so magic suffered because of this mm -hmm. the types of tricks that magicians started to get what became available now weren't as three-dimensional anymore um and, I, and then the next step happened is DVDs faded mm -hmm. and everything was downloadable on the internet. Sometimes, you know, you, you just buy a download and you'd have to make the trick yourself. Yeah. Right. And what was it? Sans Mind Magic was huge on that. Those yeah. kinds of arts and crafts projects. Yeah. So the point I'm making is that I feel like the magic inventors and creators aren't for the most part 90 percent, maybe 95 percent of what is out there are not tricks that have been in a magician's repertoire for three years five years mm -hmm. a lifetime that they are finally sharing mm -hmm. instead people are coming up with stuff just to sell it let me tell you a story i studied with eddie fields you know who he is? Yes, I uh, the um, he he the created the ultra uh, he created the lucky coin plot uh, in the Artful Dodges of Eddie Fields is where that is first published. I mean, and that yes. that's a trick that I've gone on to to work with extensively. I mean, if right. it weren't for Eddie Fields putting that out, I certainly wouldn't have a career today. Right, but that's not the most famous trick he created. No. You know, the most famous trick he created. Oh. Invisible deck. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, but this week the show is brought to you by Miracle Pickpocket from R. Paul Wilson. Nick Lacapo join me via Zoom to discuss this astonishing solid through solid effect. Nick, it is that time again. It is time for the annual R. Paul Wilson Appreciation Society meeting. 
Yes, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The, the meeting is now uh, commenced. Uh, our Paul Wilson <laughs> has this like great knack for taking classic effects that everyone kind of overlooked and giving them the, just that little tweak that makes you want to perform them. And this week, we're talking about his effect, Miracle Pickpocket. I never would have thought that I would see our Paul Wilson out at the bar with a napkin and a cord and some like... Do, do we call them Chinese coins anymore? I, I can't remember. I think what do so. We do? I mean, they're like, what are we doing? It's, it, is this okay? They're, we, they're, they're washer style coins that have coins Asian characters. Yeah. That have probably offensive characters on them. Anyway, um, you put these, so you, you describe a way that people didn't used to like, they would, they would protect their money. Right. Mm-hmm. So you take your most valuable coin you put it on this string so that nobody can steal it. But then you also sandwich it with some other coins as well. So it would make it hard for somebody to like grab the one out of the center, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be impossible to grab it out of the center anyway because it's stuck on a cord. Then you cover this whole thing. But then somehow, even though it's covered and being held by people, you remove all of the coins yeah. at the same time. It's, it'll, it'll wreck your head if you see it. It's such a clever idea. And this this is a this is one of those like topological mysteries that dates back quite some time. But R. Paul Wilson figured out how to turn it into a very magical sort of ring yeah, on string, solid through solid. In the history, type it probably wasn't examinable, and, it, and but now it is. Yeah. Right? Is that what he fixed? Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he fixed it in a way that you wouldn't have even considered. And then when he does it, you're just like, oh my god. I, how does yeah, this work? I mean, look, just yeah. go watch the demo and check out the reactions from this thing because I mean, it it gets runaway reactions from these frat boys that we met out <laughs> at, at the at the bar when we were doing it, and he just crushed them with it. Yeah, there's and, other stuff on this tutorial as well. Shows you how to do some visual penetrations of the cords, yeah, uh, the cord with the coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, you're just here for the um, for the big one where, where you get all the coins to just yeah. drop off. In some impossible way. Yeah, if you if you want to do coin on string style stuff, this is definitely one to check out. Uh, our Paul goes through all the things you need to do, and it's super easy to do. It's amazing. easy. Yeah, it's a great trick. Miracle Pickpocket by R. Paul Wilson. Check it out. That was Miracle Pickpocket by R. Paul Wilson, available at penguinmagic.com. As always, the incredible listeners to our show receive 25% off the featured product of the week when they enter a special discount code at checkout. This week, that code is theft. That's theft, T-H-E-F-T, for 25% off Miracle Pickpocket by R. Paul Wilson. That code is only good for Miracle Pickpocket and only good until the next episode of this show airs. Now, back to my conversation with Danny Orleans. But that's not the most famous trick he created. No. You know the most famous trick he created? Oh, I knew you Invisible did. deck. Yes! <laughs> that's right. Because right? The, yes. He came up with the methodology, yes. the roughed cards. That was his idea, right? He came up with that. He came up with the pattern for mm. invisible deck. The whole idea of the deck is invisible. Now, Don Allen, you know, really popularized it. But yeah. anyway, I studied with Eddie. And Jan and I studied together with Eddie because he he also did a mind reading act with a partner. Mm. He did a second side act, which is how he made his money. But Eddie used to pitch Svengali decks. And when he first saw his first Svengali deck being pitched when he was a kid, the pitchman sold him a deck. Eddie got it. He walked away. He opened it up. 
and you realize the cards were just flimsy out of paper and they weren't in order. The short cards were not interweaved with the long cards. Yeah. They were separated. And Eddie went back and said, I, this isn't what you were using. You had these nice cards and they were every other one was a, a short card. And you're not selling me what you were demonstrating. And the pitchman replied, oh, my deck is for performing. The deck I sold you is for buying and selling. Yeah. And that's what I think is happening a lot to the magic community in terms of magic tricks. Magic tricks are being created for buying and selling, not really for performing. Mm -hmm. You buy the trick, you look at it, isn't that clever, but it's not practical, or it won't fit in your pocket, or it will break, or it just won't last a, a long time. You're going to have to buy another one in a month. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of that out there that where the tricks are, you know, it works as a single, maybe as a single entity unto itself. Yeah. But in terms of the average strolling magician who has to carry five to 10 magic tricks in their pockets, it requires three pockets, which is too many, or it just isn't a practical thing to carry around. And I saw, I was beginning to see that over and over and over again, far too often in the final years of my reviewing. And that's why I, I really wanted to stop. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I, I feel like, you know, I've been doing magic for about 20 years now, and I feel like I saw some of what you talked about. And only here recently, I've started to see there's a new generation of people who are having to go out and get these reactions on video and so i think you're seeing sort of the the upswing where it's coming out of that dive where you're, you're starting to see more and more practical things not everything because there's certainly a number of things that are produced out there uh that are really only good on the internet or like good for like instagram or tiktok sure. uh but you definitely see uh more and more people that like ourselves and some of our competitors are working with where the because they have a regular performer on the screen, that performer is having to look at those tricks and say, hey, uh, we need to be, how do I get into this? Because I've got to show a performance because the, because the internet and reviewer, the new reviewers who grew up seeing you and being influenced by you mm -hmm. have started calling that out. And that, that, is, that, is, that is what we're, we're seeing new people start to actually put some flight time into the tricks before they come out. At least that's that's my impression. Uh, but that also could be a very self-serving statement from somebody who produces magic tricks for a living. Right, yeah, you you have to walk both sides of the fence here. Yeah. Uh, not so easy. But, you, you know, before, I mean, when I was a kid mm -hmm. seeing, well, not a kid, I, I didn't really see my first lectures till I was in my early 20s at Magic Inc., mm -hmm. um, I never went to a magic convention until I was in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. um, but when I first started seeing lecturers like at Abbott's get together, the magicians that were lecturing were lecturing their own material yeah. that they had done thousands of times, not dozens of times. Yeah. And, and they had a real prop that really worked yeah. and it was very practical stuff. And that's been my disappointment you know, with magic in terms of there's so much material. I mean, you know, working at Penguin, mm -hmm. you guys put out 
is it one trick every week or is it more? So uh, I think it's one trick a week. It seems like I know that I've been working on uh, things for, for quite some time. We usually, I think I usually have about six to eight months with a trick before I finally get it out uh, on the market. Right. And, you know, going back to the olden days, yeah. you know, when I, when I was a kid, I would get a newsletter from Lou Tannins once a month at the most. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was, I think it was once a quarter, Yeah, you know, and it would have eight tricks, yeah. you know, and not all of them were new, you know. So it, it just, the rate of new items coming to market now because of the internet, because mm -hmm. things can be, instructions can be produced on video mm -hmm. and such. It's much faster. Yeah. And there's a lot of ideas out there. I mean, we're certainly people are standing on the shoulders of, of those who have come before him, before them and, and creating new stuff. And it is fascinating to see the amount of new stuff coming out all the time. But you know, so much of it is is really disappointing for the full-time professional who is looking for practical material that they can include in their repertoire. Now that I would agree with, because I think that um, as I have gotten deeper into this side of things, I, I think um, that what I have found is that the magic marketplace demographic is a different one than it thinks it is. I think that many people think that if they find the right trick, then they can be the ones with their names up there in lights and working the magic castle in the Chicago magic lounge. Whereas the, the magic professional is what's the old saying that, that a, an amateur does new tricks for the same six people, but a professional does uh, the same six tricks for, for new people all the time. And yes. I think that I think Albert Goshman said that Albert Goshman did say that. Thank you for, for giving me that reference. I, I appreciate it. I do think that um, most of the magic that is marketed these, these days is not marketed for professionals. I think there is some, but I think you can also see the gulf of where that is. Uh, and there's really nothing the matter with that. Yeah. You know, as Eugene Berger said, there are many houses in, in the world of magic. Mm -hmm. um, that quote isn't quite right, but it's close. And it's okay to be a magician who, this is a hobby, yeah. and what you're really collecting is secrets Absolutely. and methodology and so you buy tricks that you say gosh i want i want to know how that works yeah. that video looked cool here's my money let me get the trick and i'm going to spend an hour or two or three learning the secret and trying to do this trick and then i'm going to do it for my friends a couple times and next week i'll buy another trick yeah. there's nothing the matter with that yeah it's just from my point of view as a professional magician mm -hmm. i want practical material that is going to work in the real world situation. Yeah. You know, there's a few people who I like when they bring something new to market. Like I always like my ears perk up a little bit because I know it's something that they've been working on. Whereas there's other creators that I look at and I go, yeah. I might want to know how it works, but I'm not as interested in taking it to like my regular restaurant gig. Right. And let me just say something about what I'm defining as a real, real world situation. Yes. And I've been talking about this recently with mm -hmm. other close-up magicians who do a lot of receptions. Mm -hmm. You know what you find at nearly every reception, a corporate reception in a hotel banquet room? Uh, a loud band. <laughs> I was thinking about props, but yeah, no, that's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And you know what? 
it's never really talked about in the magic community. Yeah. So what does how does that impact a professional magician trying to do a strolling magic act when you literally need to be at the least talking loudly and really supporting your voice yeah. and at the most shouting to yeah. be heard if you're performing for a table of eight people sitting at an eight a round table that's five feet in diameter and the person away, you know, across the table is five feet away. How are they going to hear you? How can you be subtle? How can you do a Eugene Berger trick? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what Eugene Berger tricks can you do that have lots of, that are very verbose or have a deep plot or that are multi-phase tricks? Mm -hmm. You can't. No, not at all. It doesn't no. work. And that's why a lot of these new tricks that come out that are, you know, have this big buildup or this complicated plot of how it's not going to work or this huge, all these selections a person has to make before the final coincidence revelation happens, right? All of that you can't do when the yeah. band is playing loud. What can you do? Paper hat tear, sponge balls, <laughs> right? Yeah card under the glass you know they have to be big visual magic you know you could do three fly mm -hmm. but maybe it has to be a shortened version of it because by the third time the coin's going they're distracted it's already too long a routine yeah um, it's something very important for the professional to consider when or the, even the amateur if you're going to be performing in a, in a real world situation at a party that's going to have loud music and they all do now you know you have to have tricks that you can that are highly visual that you can perform in 30 seconds to 90 seconds i'd push you further than that i think that the strolling magician in a restaurant is up against the same thing when when i go so i have a regular gig that i do on saturdays and sundays i'm at the brunch at this great restaurant in columbus called, called town hall next time you come to columbus i'm going to take you to town hall for lunch sometime okay. danny you're going to love it uh, but it is loud. Sometimes there's a game on. And when I'm in there trying to road test penguin products, I get sometimes I'll get halfway through a penguin trick that's going to come out. And I go, you know what? It's not for this situation. And I am always looking for stuff that is visual and quick and can live right. in that environment. It's not just banquets. I think anyone who is trying to work professional strolling has got to deal with that. Yeah, it's a big issue. Oh, yeah. Well, Danny, I'm going to shift the topic on you one more time. Sure. Um, because uh, I know that in the future, um, I'm going to have your wife, the lovely and talented Jan Rose, on this. But I wanted to hear from you a little bit about how you two perform together because you do a, a two-person second sight act, don't you? Yes, we do. But that's not the first act we did together. What is the first act you did together? Well, back in 1983... I held auditions for an assistant because I had an opportunity to perform in a theater in downtown Chicago doing a children's holiday show. Okay. In a th real theater that sat 600 people. And so the producer had seen my show and said, this is great. This is exactly what we want, but it needs to be bigger. I need script. I need lighting and one or two magic illusions and assistant. Mm -hmm. So I had a show written uh, we, it was very different than a normal, at the time, a traditional magic show in terms of uh, it wasn't just an assistant carrying trays, walking back and forth off and on. She actually had a role in the show. She was a character that played a, a young, undefined of 
a young person of an undefined age that didn't really want to help in the magic show. Instead, she wanted to look for Christmas presents. <laughs> so there was this constant comedy going on of her entering and me exiting as we were doing the show. And that was very funny. And the woman I hired was Jan Rose. Oh, wow. And fast forward, fast forward, we take that show on the road. We tour that show for seven years. In that seven year period, we got married and we performed at the Brooklyn Academy of Music for 2,000 people. We performed at the Westbury Music Fair for 3,000 families in the round. You know, we did a lot of these big, bigger venues and uh, all up and down the, the East Coast uh, and in, in, in the, and the Midwest as well. Um, but then it became very apparent that uh, Eugene Berger said to Jan, you know what? You can't do this role forever. Mm. <laughs> and he introduced us uh, to Eddie Fields. He and Jay Marshall introduced us to Eddie Fields and Eddie Fields taught us our two person mind reading act. Oh, wow. That's so that's the background. And we studied, we went and Eddie had nothing written down. Yeah. You know, he was a real, you know, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, he was just a very simple man. Mm -hmm. He had developed this amazing second sight act that he had done actually with three people, but the third one was the best one and the longest relationship he had. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he taught us that, but he had nothing written down. I said, Eddie, so show us the code, Eddie. And he goes, I, I don't have anything written down. And we had to extract it from him. He was in his seventies oh, wow. at the time and uh, late seventies. And, and we had to extract it by asking him all these questions and Eddie, how do you send the date on a coin if the date is rubbed off on the coin? <laughs> like we had questions like that. And he goes, yeah. oh, that happened to us once. Here's what I said, you know. So. Um, oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. I, well, I have to have Jen Rose on uh, just just because, A, she is a huge part of the Chicago Magic Lounge, as I know. As I know, you are. She all, sure is. She, man, she really keeps that place humming. Uh, yeah. But uh, Danny, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm just gonna have to have you back sometime because I think you've got too many stories to keep in one show. <laughs> Lots of stories. I've been doing this for a long time, and really, really love performing magic. I'm still very active and uh, having the busiest year ever. So thanks. It's fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, Danny. I'll talk to you again soon. That's going to do it for this week, kids. Thanks so much to Danny Orleans for being on the show, and thanks to you for listening. Upcoming show and appearance alerts, I will be lecturing and performing at PCAM in San Diego in November. There are still some registrations available, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with the Penguin fans on the West Coast. Also, I'll be appearing at Keller's Magic and Comedy Club for the next few weeks, opening for Bobcat Goldthwait, Bobby Borgia, and Blake Vogt. Tickets are available now if you go to kellersmagic.com. And... I can announce that I'll be returning to the Magic Castle December 11th through the 17th, performing in the late close-up gallery. I'm looking forward to being back at the castle and looking forward to hanging out with everyone there. As always, we're a weekly podcast, so be sure to like and subscribe as well as share your favorite episodes on the social media platform that you've been getting ready for spooky season on. If you wanted to reach out to me about anything on this week's show, you're going to have to write it on a note and paste it to one of the five 18-foot-tall skeletons the restaurant I gig in has posted all around the patio. Seriously five of them. It's bonkers. I feel like I'm doing close-up magic surrounded by the army of the damned. But 
If giant Halloween decorations aren't your thing, you can always hit me up on Instagram at Eric Tate. That's at E-R-I-K-T-A-I-T. From me and everyone else here at the P3 Magic Studios, practice, practice, perform. Perform.